Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello, and welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies. It's not just any episode today, but my second anniversary episode. Two whole years of getting to interview the most wonderful and interesting people and bake with them. So to celebrate, I have as my special guest, my dear, dear friend, Rose Levy Berenbaum on to talk about, well, cookies and her new cookbook, which is called The Cookie Bible. And we really go full on, well, cookies on this episode as one might expect from the second anniversary of The Secret Life of Cookies. And before we get on with the show and you finally learn the difference between baking soda and baking powder and why your cookies turned out flat, again, I wouldn't be here today without all of you, my lovely and amazing and truly supportive listeners. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all more than I can convey properly in words. Here's to a third grand year and many more interesting episodes and delicious cookies ahead. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. This is Marissa Roadcop meeting with one of her favorite people on the planet. Um, and I couldn't think of a better guest for what I'm thinking is really my second anniversary episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. Who better than Rose? Levy Berenbaum, the queen, the diva of all cookie dumb and all baking dumb. And it's such a pleasure to have you here. It's great to see you, Marissa. To be completely clear and upfront with everybody, I've known Rose for a little bit now. There was a time when I didn't know you and I just worshiped your books. And then I got to meet you and know you and, and actually hug you in person. And that really was one of the most fantastic things ever. And here we are today. You are the you have published for those, I don't know, the five people on the planet who don't know who you are. You're the author of 13 cookbooks and new, and we're looking at your newest baby right now, the Cookie Bible. You have won every manner of IACP culinary award, every James Beard award possible, just all the awards because your books are so brilliant and to the point and helpful and make everybody who doesn't think they're a good baker into a good baker. Well, my goal in writing these books were, two, were actually two things. The main one was to share these things and have other people succeed at what I love. But the other thing is that I wanted to do it for myself, because who can remember all these recipes? I can't even remember anymore what recipes in which book. So I really devoted myself to the meticulous details of all the things. And the feedback that I've gotten is that, oh, my God, nothing ever fails. It always works. That's so dear to my heart. I'm sick with COVID right now. Um, I'm not, I don't feel bad, but I can't taste anything. So this is the first podcast I'm not doing from my kitchen so that I don't spread my cooties all around my family. And it also means that there are all these wonderful cookies that I'm reading about that I wish I were making, mostly that I wish I were eating. Aside from yours, which is the one that you're dying to taste first? That's a really good question. Um, I, I don't usually get to ask, get asked questions, but I think the three that I really want to make are these chocolate, uh, chocolate, very chocolatey chocolate cookies. 
which are basically like a drop brownie that are studded with like dark chocolate. I really want to eat, obviously, vanilla kipfung, which I have to make every Christmas. And I really want to make a Linzer tart and eat that. Mm, good choice. Good Austrian what, choice. Good Austrian choices. And what about you? What are three that you have to have at Christmas? Or as we like to call it, the holidays. I don't have to have anything particular any time of year. It's the ones that call to me the most. I mean, but, but to be honest, around Christmas time and holiday time, I always think of the toffee because that to me is a very winter kind of thing. But and Thanksgiving, I always think of the lemon butter bars with the cranberry now. I wouldn't make them without the cranberry. I love it so much because shortbread, cranberry, lemon curd doesn't get better than that. But Woody and I both agree that our favorite cookie that we keep wanting to eat and make is the one you were describing, which is the truffle baked into a cookie, I think, because bits of chocolate chips in the cookie dough, it's crunchy, but the center has the ganache. And my mouth waters just talking about it. So moist inside, and you have all these different sensations of chocolate. There's so much that we can talk to uh, each other about cookies. I've found myself getting so many nice questions from people about cookie baking this time of year. I thought I would pose them to you because you are the queen of making all things perfectly. But before we start that, I do want to say that for anybody out there who hasn't bought their favorite beloved person a present, the Cookie Bible is here. This is the book that you have now. And the reason I want everyone to buy the Cookie Bible is not just because it is a stunning, incredible book, but I also have the honor of being one of the recipes or I have one of the recipes in the book, which is actually one of the only cookies I've baked this year so far, which is a peanut butter shortbread with chocolate chunks. So thank you for letting me be part of that. So I've never made them any way except just plain until I found out about your peanut butter chocolate chip cookie and I had to try it. And that's how it ended up in the book. The peanut butter makes it so tender. And I think that's sort of the unassuming part about that cookie. It's like, oh, shortbread. And then it sort of melts in your mouth. And people who don't like peanut butter because they claim it sticks to the roof of their mouth, which to me is a good thing because it lasts longer. Blended in with all the sandiness of, of a shortbread cookie, you don't notice that at all. You just get that wonderful flavor. Bosco, who is sleeping outside the door and a friend of yours, uh, Rose is famous for bringing Bosco bones from all of her delicious meals. Bosco also likes the fact that peanut butter sticks to the roof of his mouth. So you two have that in common. Does he know that there is a Bonafido dog biscuit in the book? I love the name Bonafido. Okay, so we are here at the cookiest time of the year, as I like to call it. And I've gotten a slew of questions from people. Neighbors have written me, friends have written me, and a number of them have had the same issue this year. And both have written me and a number of them have written me in a panic going, my cookies are flat. Why are they flat? And they're, they're making recipes that they have made for years, like old family recipes. And for whatever reason or other, they're turning out flat. And I like to be the forensic baker, you know, like we could have like our own like CSI except for baking disasters. And we could, fig- wouldn't that be a great show, Rose? We could figure out the problem with all these people's baked goods. But what would you say was, what would be the first thing that you looked at if you if you pull a tray of cookies out of the oven and they're all flat, like really like tweel like flat? 
turn them into tweels. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you have to find a way to a silver lining. But I love the fact that you prefaced it by saying that it had always worked before. And that's when I get out my, I call myself Sherlocka Holmes, because all during the pandemic, people were saying that their breads, those who had never baked before, had a lot of million questions, but those who did said that their breads were not rising as high, maybe a whole inch lower. And so I looked at my own book, The Bread Bible, where I wrote that flour needs to rest for three days after milling to strengthen. And I couldn't even find flour on the shelves in the supermarket. That's what a run there was on flour. Consequence, they were rushing out the production and the flour was weaker. Yes, it's the flour. It's not always the person. It's sometimes the ingredients. Great ingredients make such a huge difference. But one of the things that helps to counteract, I don't use unbleached flour in too many of the cookies. But here's where sometimes it really comes in handy because the unbleached flour has a higher protein content. So that means it is stronger. And it means that it ties up whatever liquid is in the cookie so that it can't puff. But it also keeps it from spreading because it's firmer, it's stronger. So if you're using bleached flour, switch to the unbleached. I think the situation will be corrected soon. But I have a feeling that once people bake bread, they'll never go back to not baking bread. It's just one of the most empowering, satisfying, and delicious things. I mean, even a flat cookie can be wonderful because it's crispy. But I worked on the formulas, the balance of ingredients in the cookie Bible to achieve the texture I was looking for. Like in the chocolate chip cookie, I want it to be crispy, chewy at the edges, but still moist in the center. And one of the ways to achieve that is to not overbake it. I mean, it's not, you have to have the right recipe to begin with. But if you bake at a higher temperature, you get I think I bake it at 350, but if you bake at 375, you'll get a different texture in the cookie. It will set, it'll be more uniform throughout, whereas a lower temperature, you'll have more of that contrast of the textures. I feel that some people, like they're literally like they put in a, a, a pan of, I don't know, molasses chews, and they kind of are supposed to be just like, a you know, your standard sort of three quarter inch high cookie, and they come out. They end up burning before the person even knows. So there's no saving them. What about the idea that they people beat their butter too long sometimes? Or what about the temperature of butter? They're too, like butter is as important to me as flour, whether you cream it, how much you cream it, what temperature it's at, when you're creaming it. What are all the, the, the differences that people need to pay attention to? Before I forget, I just want to mention that another thing that helps when baking cookies is to use parchment because you mentioned burning around the edges and parchment protects that. I don't like a silk pad as much because of some cookies, if it's caramel, yes, or toffee, so it doesn't stick. But then those crisp because parchment actually will absorb and wick away some of the moisture and it also will protect it. And of course, it's easier to clean up, but that's another issue. So the thing about butter with cookies, I mean, I think of cookies as the most forgiving of all things that you bake. You can even, in most cookies, pinch off a little bit, bake one cookie, see how it's coming out. If it's spreading too much, maybe add more flour to the next one. You get it right. But as far as butter, I think maybe 70% of our cookies we make in a food processor. So creaming isn't the issue, not even the temperature of the butter. It's the type of butter. If you switch to high-fat butter, you get less liquid, which is less, more tender, and also more fat. 
So, and it spreads more. So there are many ways to get around that, but I like high fat butter for the buttercreams or for a laminated dough, but not for most cookies, just an AA butter. Of course, if you get one of those generic cheap butters, it has a lot more liquid. So that's why the ingredients do make a big difference. And I think a lot of us think that if we're buying something like, if we buy a high fat European butter and we're making cookies, that it's the better thing to do because you're going to get a better, richer, purer, you know, butter taste. And the truth is, what uh, just to repeat what you're saying, save those for laminated doughs, like if you're making croissant or something like that, when that's necessary and you don't want as much water in the mixture. But you kind of want that mixture of water and fat that's a little more, ba- not balanced, but there's a little less fat in a double A butter, like Lando Lakes. Not a sponsor. A huge difference when you use the uh, high fat butter, you have less water. And it, so it doesn't bubble out as much. In fact, these days, I don't rush clarifying. I do it slowly, stirring the whole time, and I never get that burst of bubbles. And I also love it for buttercream because, like the mousseline, which is my favorite buttercream, I'm sure it's in the cookie book too, because it's used to sandwich cookies sometimes. The mousseline means getting butter emulsified with Italian meringue or heated meringue. So it's hard to get the two together, but when there's less water and higher fat, it's much easier. And that water also turns to steam in a cookie, which is good because it helps to give it lift. Is there a common mistake other than like ingredients that people make in the steps they take to make a cookie? Measuring. I mean, of course, you know, a proponent I am of weighing <laughs> ever since we searched first for that. Do you have a scale in this kitchen? It's so much more reliable, precise, and easier cleanup. You use far less things. But we put in how to, how to measure, because a lot of people still will measure. And the difference between flour, when you scoop it and then sweep off the flour versus lightly spooning it, could be as much as a third of a cup, three quarters of a cup of even seen, because the flour can settle. So if you are measuring, well, I can't speak to other people's recipes, because they may not mention which, how they're measuring, so you don't know how much flour is in there. But I'm really pleased that nowadays more and more people are putting weights in the book, and that's a great help. So that's, I think, one of the main issues. As far as baking, putting different size cookies on the same cookie sheet means a compromise. Either the small ones overbake or the large ones underbake, and somewhere in the middle is not what you're looking for. So either shape them more or less the same size or separate them onto different sheets. And I like baking cookies on one sheet at a time. They're so quick to bake, there's no real reason to have to do it any other way. In fact, while the one sheet is baking, often you can shape the next sheet, right? Most cookies have little egg or maybe no egg. Some of my cookies have a half an egg, which had people tearing out their hair because they thought, how do you get a half an egg? Well, you know, you break it, you whisk it, and you measure it or you weigh it. If you are counting on egg yolk, especially when you're making lemon curd. I remember what the first time it started happening when my lemon curd was not thickening. And it was because the yolks had shrunk. And I finally got to the bottom of it that the laying hens in industry are younger. So they're making smaller yolks for the same size egg. And smaller yolks mean larger whites, you know, which also throws out when you're making a meringue. So I now add an extra yolk in the cake Bible that exists already because that way 
people will be, or sometimes we say six to nine yolks. Remember in the ice cream book, and somebody responded with, well, can you decide which it should be? I wish the chicken would. You know, I mean, weigh or measure them, and then you'll know how much you need. But expect it will be more. I mean, sometimes we have egg yolk of 20 grams for a normal egg. Even the jumbo eggs are missized. Yeah, I always, you know, I always call for a measure for large eggs when I write a recipe because I want to be people. I want there to be consistency with the size of the egg, the volume of the egg that I use, even though it's a little more vague. I know that Ina Garten always calls for extra large eggs. And I wonder if she ended up doing that because of the yolk size. The reason she does that is because she also knows that you're not going to probably get the right amount. But uh, if you're using a whole egg, it's going to be too much white. So this it could be a problem. That's what's going to affect the outcome. And with a cookie, it means a lot less than it does with a cake or pie. And when you say you're very precise, too, if people go, oh, yes, her recipes are very precise, they say about Rosalie Berenbaum. And I say, I know, because the first time I watched you bake in person at my house, you broke open an egg and you didn't just crack it and, you know, let the contents fall out into the bowl. You scraped the inside of the eggshell to make sure that the entire egg went into the batter. I once saw somebody else do that many years ago. Jack Lirio, who is a wonderful food personality and cookbook writer. He may have one of his books. You know, we all learn from each other. And so it was not everything is my idea, too. I want to go back to the baking off. You're like, you say, oh, let, I'm just going to put one sheet in. That makes it simpler for people. But sometimes at this time of year, we're sort of harried and we've got, you know, I have three racks in my oven. Shouldn't Why don't I use them all? And so I try. But I think one of the most difficult things to convey to people when you're writing a recipe is you can't just put, you have to not only switch around the cookie sheets, but I mean, up and down, but also back to front. I call it whirling dervish baking. <laughs> when you have more things in the oven, it means it will take longer to bake because it takes longer to absorb the heat. I found that out when I was testing cake recipes and I just did one layer instead of two and the timing I was giving was for one when I was baking two. So you really have to pay attention to so many little details for such a simple thing as baking. I never want to overcomplicate something though, right? You want it to be user-friendly, but you know what? It's very disappointing and not a bit user-friendly when people fail. And it took that to get people to realize the value of all the information that I put in the books. But in the Cake Bible, one editor actually said, you throw the reader into a frenzy of contingencies. You go, you go over their head telling them more than they need to know. And I, I cried, and then I thought, okay. I mean, she rejected the manuscript, right? For her. Anyway, look what happened with the book. Now in its 16th printing. But the point is that her, her comment really helped me because I thought, if I'm upset, I should change it. If I'm not upset, I shouldn't. Or maybe a combination of both. So what I did is I kept the information, but I put it aside from the recipe so that there were sidebars. So the first time that you look, you may use it, and then you don't have to see it again. And this was all because Joy of Cooking said, if you need to know more about egg yolks, go to such and such a page. And I thought, I don't need to know more about egg yolks. Knowing nothing, you don't know what you need to know, right? So... I made, I made that angel pie, and it turned out to be some putrid color that no angel ever aspired to because it reacted with the aluminum cans. So that's what 
when I looked to that page that they were cross-referencing to, oh, don't use aluminum pens when you're using egg yolk. And after that, when they said, you may need to know more, I knew that, in fact, I did need to know more. But when it's on the same page, I'm hoping it will catch somebody's eye and they won't have to make the mistake first. Speaking of mistakes, I, I, I love that you do mention your mistakes in the past because that's such an important part of the whole entire cooking process. Like, I can never get too cocky about something. I can, you know, I always do have to pay attention to what I'm doing, even though I have the brain of a squirrel, you know, <laughs> what's out there? Because otherwise, I make mistakes. I, I, the, the cookie Bible here has a story in the beginning about, I guess, you making oatmeal cookies for the first time and what happened. Because it's not like you like grew up in a house where they were baking cookies all the time. My mother was a dentist, an orthodontist. There was nothing sweet in the house, <laughs> except for rock candy, because her mother used to have a candy store, and that was the one thing that she kept still made when she lived with us. So, yes, I grew up without any cookies, except once in a while, store-bought those marshmallow that are sandwiching, a sandwich by those two cookies that if it was one day old, I would turn my nose up at it, even though it was something finely sweet. So... I thought when I came home from University of Vermont, you know, everybody bakes there and in New England, and I thought, I'll make cookies. And I looked at the oatmeal, Quaker oatmeal box, and I thought, there it is, plain as day, English, you know. So I made a cookie. It was what it turned out to be, because I'm sure even then I followed the instructions exactly. But for some reason, it filled up the entire pan. It became one gigantic cookie. And I thought, I don't understand this, and I don't want to know anything more about it. I'm not going to bake anymore. <laughs> but actually, it was the Kifli, the, uh, the Rose's Common Crescents. I call it that because it was the first cookie I baked successfully when I was working in Princeton, and somebody brought in this cookie, and it was a little bit of cinnamon and sugar, not overly sweet, very tender, very buttery, and I thought it was one of the best things I ever tasted. And she probably still have the index card she gave me the recipe on. I mean, I'm sure it's changed a bit since, but... For years, when I wanted to pay somebody who wouldn't charge me, like a doctor or whatever, I'd bring the cookies. And I remember one particular doctor, as I was leaving, he was sitting in his office and he forgot to close the door. And he was using both hands to put the cookies in as fast as he could. They're pretty reliable cookies now. Oh, yeah. I would think, you know, Girl Scout. Oh, the worst thing that happened about Girl Scout cookies. We may not have had cookies in the house, but we ended up with them because I was selling them. I lived on the sixth floor of a 30-story building on Central Park West, and I was selling Girl Scout cookies on the street. I did quite well. And then I, when I got home, I realized I hadn't taken anybody's address. <laughs> they were probably so relieved. You know, so they were, the whole coat closet was filled with Girl Scout cookies, and they were horrible. But I've heard they've really improved the recipe now. Terrible. You have a closet full of cookies you don't want to eat. That's a terrible terrible thing. Maybe she was sneaking them. <laughs> she was a closet cookie eater, actually, because my grandmother, when she, when she was young, before she became a dentist, my grandmother, her mother, one day cleaned the couch and found stuffed into the cushions were all the wrappers from those, uh, what were those, those bars that were really sweet with chocolate and marshmallow stuff. And I forget the name of it, but the thing is that they're best eaten frozen. And so my mother would just reach into the freezer, grab one, and then put the evidence in the, in the questions. She told me, Rosie, don't you want to have all your teeth when you're an old lady? 
And I said, I don't care. I'm never going to be an old lady anyway. <laughs> I still have all my teeth, but I also have a new crown. And, you know, I think maybe I should have listened. No, I think you're pretty good. I mean, you floss, right? What is the difference between um, baking soda and baking powder and cookies? And do I need it? Yeah, because, you know, some cookies are small. So obviously, except if they're bar cookies. So they quickly. And often don't have a chance to brown. And baking soda helps it to brown. So that's really a big help. And in some cookies, I put it in not to make it rise more, but just to make it brown more. But you can't put too much in because it has to react to something acid in the cookie. I mean, even flour has some acidity. But if you put too much in, it has a soapy flavor, which reminds me that another important thing about ingredients, baking powder, it really doesn't matter so much what you use in a cake. But in a cookie, if you use the aluminum-based baking powder, it's, I mean, yeah, in a cookie or a pie crust, it's really nasty. It has a bitterness. So I've been using the calcium-based, Rumford is one. And at first I had to go to health food stores because people weren't using the aluminum-based out of health concerns. But now that people understand it really gives a better flavor, it's available in supermarkets too. Yeah, I think that's a point that not a lot of people get. And I think some people are sort of used to that flavor now. Like grandma's cookies tasted like, and they have that little bit of that metallic soapy flavor to it. But I I can taste it. I mean, when I can taste. Now I think my mouth just tastes like I've been eating aluminum baking powder. I think that's the the leftover flavor of Paxlovid in case anybody wants to know. A very nice friend of mine suggested that Mentos and fruit juice are the best things for con- combating that the flavor in your mouth and also sort of the only thing I can barely taste. So I've been eating a lot of yogurt with cereal on it just to like feel like I have something in my stomach. I have a few more cookie questions for you. And one is, especially this time of year, we're always rolling out dough. What happens when my dough cracks or it just doesn't seem to have that beautiful buttery Play-Doh-like pliability? That's a wonderful question because it touches on two things. One is that when I said that I had a way of making no cracks in the cookies for decorating, the host who was interviewing me said, but I want cracks. I, I, look, I love those ginger snaps with cracks. And I said, yeah, you want them there. But if you're trying to decorate a cookie, you want a smooth cookie. And that's when you use super fine sugar. But you can make it easily in a food processor. It's true that it may make your food processor a bit cloudy that it won't be like it's brand new but it's meant to be used right so this is a great way you just process it for a few minutes it doesn't turn to powdered sugar but you get the super fine i think it's identical so the other thing you said that your cookies were oh yes about cracking that this happened to me with holiday cookies where i wanted to decorate them that even though i didn't want to alter the recipe because it was a perfect texture and also if i were to make it softer it would be more sticky and would stick to the surface. So what I did, I used to work for Reynolds Metals Company for aluminum foil and plastic wrap. I always think of one or the other when I have a problem. In this case, plastic wrap. When you put a sheet of it over the top of the cookie and roll on top, it comes together unless it's really crumbly. I mean, if it's that crumbly, then something wrong. You have to knead it more. And the thing is that there's enough sugar. Like my average cookie, I think, has six tablespoons, I think, in terms of volume here, to one cup of flour. There's enough sugar that you can knead it and re-knead it, and it won't be like a pie crust that will turn to cardboard. That's what I mean by forgiving. 
So thank you for asking, bringing that up. Yeah, I think that the plastic wrap tip is a really good one because we tend to sort of like keep throwing flour on and smushing it together. And if we just put plastic wrap on, we can be a little kinder and gentler to the dough. Um, and also, wonder flour, it's like little ball bearing particles because it's been pre-cooked partially. So it behaves differently, it doesn't absorb into the dough as much. And I also created a dough mat for rolling because it's the most nonstick of any surface I know. So in some cookies that are so sticky and you need them to be, then I would put them between sheets of plastic wrap. There are people who do it between sheets of parchment, but you know, parchment doesn't flex quite the same way. So I find plastic wrap works the best. Yeah, I find when I use parchment, I get sort of like a wrinkled effect on my dough. Exactly. Because like, it sticks in it. Flip it over and make sure that it isn't connecting and in, uh, going into the cookie dough on the bottom a few times and dust it very lightly with the Wonder flour. Yeah, the Wonder comes in a can. It's a great, I, I also use Wonder if I have, if I'm making an elaborate, something in an elaborate bunt cake pan and I don't have like, Baker's Joy or Pam spray with flour, and I'll spray it with Pam, regular Pam, and then I'll use Wonder as the flour, the nonstick flour. Just knock it all out. The reason I was shaking my head is that that Pam with baked flour is an imitation of the Baker's Joy, and it doesn't smell good. You know, it doesn't release as well. But so I'm just giving this a tip because I don't work for either one. There was a time when Joy, they so loved how much I was devoted to them, they sponsored something or other. Did you know that I used to represent butter for the Dairy Council? In two years, I increased the sale of butter by 15 and three quarter percent, which was unheard of. Yeah, because, well, they hired me. They didn't have to teach me anything because they hired me because they noticed that I was saying that I'd rather have one cookie made with butter than than any number of cookies made without it. I mean, there's some cookies that don't have any fat, the meringue cookies, but I don't see a case for using shortening there's no flavor whatsoever and i can achieve the same texture the cookie in the book the molasses and sally's i think it is uh that this butter it was originally crisco and she said it needs the crisco to have the texture and i thought what's what's the difference okay butter has water so why don't i just get rid of the water clarify the butter and use the same amount of fat as i would for the crisco and it worked the same texture with a glorious flavor that is a question right here on the piece of paper next to me, which is so much, especially so many old timey recipes that grandma's passed down at some point, you know, the Crisco company got to grandma and said, don't bother creaming that hard butter. Use this delicious sh- shortening. It makes everything easy and look how tender your cookies are. And so many family recipes have shortening in them. And so the best way to alter them, you're saying, is so clarifying the, the, the same amount of butter should create a similar texture to grandma's with the shortening? No, because shortening is 100% fat and butter is like 81% fat, the standard butter, plus the, the milk solids are a good thing. In fact, I remember Carl Sondheimer from the Cuisine Art who brought it to this country. He said to me, if a mixture isn't smooth, use butter, not butter, the milk solids, but not the milk solids from butter, he meant dried milk. But milk can have a way of emulsifying other ingredients. So you have to just calculate after you make the clarified butter. If you're doing it by weight, you just take the same weight as you would the shortening. And you can still use this in solids. They're only a very small amount, and they add more flavor. In, some, in fact, in the chocolate chip cookie, I brown the butter and use those brown solids, and that 
gives a wonderful texture plus the best flavor you could possibly hope for. And your your cookies also call for one of my favorite chocolate chip cookie ingredients. In fact, one of my favorite secret ingredients in the kitchen, which is Lyle's golden syrup. <laughs> I used to think I'd have to go to England and bring it back myself because they weren't going to continue sending it here because nobody got it. And finally, I said, okay, I'm going to give you free of charge my best pecan pie recipe. Pronounced like a southerner, by the way. I like pecan, not pecan. And you can put it on your jar. And it kept. they kept it. And now I see other writers saying, Lyle's, Lyle's, you know, refiner's syrup. And I'm so proud of myself for having done that. Mostly because we, well, we can get it. That recipe on the, the pecan pie recipe on the Lyle's is yours? Unless they've changed it and I can't see why they would. I mean, I haven't had to buy some for a long time because I had bought so much of it just to be sure it would still be here. It does keep forever. Golden, what's called golden syrup. But the main thing is that it tastes like butterscotch. It doesn't just taste like sugar the way corn syrup does. It has that beautiful flavor. I love it. In the same way that I like maple syrup, I like Lyle's golden syrup because it adds just a whole dimension that you just don't get otherwise. Maple syrup isn't what it was. I mean, when I went to college in Vermont many years ago, you could taste the maple. And then the further north you go now, the more you get the flavor, the further south, the more it's like sweetened syrup. You know, it's not maple. Maple flavoring has more flavor than maple syrup. But one of my best cakes in the cake Bible was the maple sugar cake. It's expensive maple sugar, but I use the maple sugar instead of the super fine sugar or fine sugar in the cake. And walnuts, of course, go really well with it. In fact, I've turned my pecan pie into a maple walnut pie as well. That's the end of the free portion of this week's episode of The Secret Life of Cookies. If you want to hear the whole episode and get the podcast ad-free, become a member of the DSR Network by going to thedsrnetwork.com. Members of the DSR Network get benefits across all our shows, and we have some exciting things in store for the new year. So go to the DSRnetwork.com now and join us. Thank you to Rose Levy Berenbaum for being my very special guest today. The Cookie Bible and all of her cookbooks are available wherever fine cookbooks are sold. Please give me a follow on my substack at marissaroskopf.substack.com or find me in the usual places like Post or Twitter or Instagram. And please, most importantly, have a happy and healthy holiday and see you all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the new year.